Thanks for downloading this podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy wherever they get their podcasts. The world's longest running motorsport magazine show, Midweek Motorsport. News, features, special guests and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. Hello everybody and welcome along to Midweek Motorsport. It's just after 8 o'clock in the UK. I must put my watch right. It's a couple of seconds slow. A couple of minutes slow, actually. Uh, it is the 16th of June. Uh, Wednesday, of course, for Midweek Motorsport. Uh, which is actually my French wedding anniversary. I've just realised. Happy anniversary, responsible adult. And thanks for putting up with me for 15 French years as well as 15... Uh, English years uh, as well. Uh, on a packed programme tonight, we have most of the usual features. Tim's on assignment this evening, uh, which means, once again, Johnny is up in London. The good news on that is it means we can get Johnny to talk about WEC uh, in the second half of tonight's programme. Uh, with a bit of luck, and if he's calmed down after the football, Kevin Estre will be joining us for our big interview just after nine o'clock tonight. We'll be uh, looking backwards at everything that happened at the weekend and forwards to MotoGP and F1 uh, at the weekend. Uh, with your comments and points arising, please, at Spec Entertainment, let's quickly take a look at what's been uh, coming in in the early uh, side uh, of things. Uh, hello to... Uh, hello to Heath Giles, EFAs, catching up on the early morning flight, uh, catching a, a chilly and wet Sydney, or swapping uh, chilly and wet uh, Sydney for a warm and sunny Darwin for this weekend's supercars. Catch up with the podcast. Uh, we've got some news on, on the grid as well uh, coming up uh, as well, because that's tomorrow evening, of course. No EFAs for Brody, a busy weekend at Thrux and Historica, CAA order to din. And no preparing for Cadwell Park on Saturday. Uh, hello to Team Valkenhorst, who are tuned in again tonight. Thanks for promoting us, guys. That's very kind of you. The Otter, Otter FR, listening live tonight while staring at my main mailbox for the postman to deliver the paper from the ACO. They've promised to send me uh, to swap my LM2020 tickets for 2021's paper form required to change tickets. All right. Uh, good stuff. Uh, hello to Kevin Payne and happy birthday, Kevin. This one just for you tonight as it's your birthday. Uh, hello to Emma Crawley, to the Sim Racing Bar Steward listening live while trying out my new Sparko Sim Racing shoes. Now, this was an interesting, uh, an interesting tome, actually. Interesting story. Took longer to get them than I planned on account of ordering children's size 10. <laughs> Yes, very good. Women's and men's the same in the UK. Children's and adults not the same. SRBS. Uh, AJ Smith, 
Nice to know that you're tuned in tonight. Hello to Dave Smithson and to Eric Offerdahl, who's underneath Scarlet, which is his 1987 944, getting some 944, excuse me, getting some work done for the weekend. Congratulations to Tring uh, and the Espresso Lounge, the best coffee house in Tring, in the top 10 uh, list for UK coffee shops. Nick and I have broken bike journeys there. The coffee's brilliant, and so is everything else. If you're ever passing Tring, maybe going to see a certain Porsche dealer down there. Pop in uh, and see them. Hello to Angus Fox uh, listening in tonight. He says, frankly, I've just realised it wasn't the uh, 24 hours of Le Mans this weekend. Matt Endine is saving the podcast for while he's working on the ZR rally car. Um, he was at the... Uh, Grafton Underwood rally at the weekend in his micro. I wish I'd known. I would have come out and waved at you. Hello, to Dave Alcock. Uh, everything well tonight, Dave? Here, connectivity restored to normal after the um, uh, beyond our control nightmares of last week. Andy Garrett is listening live after a delicious barbecue. Worked up an appetite by cutting the lawns with the ride on. Oh, I'm envious. Uh, and the fields tractor. Uh, puts me in mind of the commentary maker from last year. Makes me smile every time I'm in the orchard. That was great fun, mate. Your lines were pretty good, in fairness. Uh, a hello to, uh, also, to Right Turn Lover. Ready if you are, he says, Mr. Hindhoff. RTL, glad to know you well. Hope your mum's fine as well. Carol Brink, both of the Brinks at home and tuning in tonight in Monterey. Alexander Orkin, light sausage supper. Now, are, are they legal sausages or have you had to smuggle them in? Let's not go there. Uh, hello to, to the Colonel. No FAs tonight. And to Neil Bourne in Blythe. Hello, Blythe, listening to the pre-show show. Well, Neil, good to have you in. Uh, and to Hawkey Hawkins, listening in on the podcast tonight at work. Going to be a muggy one. It's sticky, isn't it, tonight? It is. Simon Hoff is listening for the first time in weeks live. Glickenhouse. Brought a bit of a retro look. You look great in golf colours, wouldn't it? Yes, but they have a different oil sponsor, don't they? Patrick Drawn is now listening. Jack Martin listening in as well. He's in the future, of course. And Doug Amner, tardiness, but now in. Uh, debating to bring in the washing or risking it for a couple of hours. Depending on where you are, Doug, I think maybe 90 minutes you should be all right. At Specutainment, if you want to get involved tonight, let's hear your thoughts about what happened at the weekend in the various sports. But we start tonight's show, I'm afraid, with some more very sad news. And we seem to have been doing far too many of these recently. Uh, it's been an awful, awful six weeks for one of the major motorsport dynasties in North America and across the world. Uh, as on Sunday, just six weeks after his father died, Bobby Unser Jr. died after surgery for a broken hip, which uh, developed blood clots that led to his death. He was only 65. He was the first son of Bobby and uh, his wife, Barbara Schumacher. And although he grew up in a racing family, Bobby Jr., not immediately interested in the sport as a teenager, more interested in playing the drums than cars, and he carried on doing that throughout his life. He did enjoy racing motorcycles and snowmobiles and started racing in go-karts. And eventually, in 1976, he made his uh, debut at the Pikes Pilt peak international hill climb with his father coaching him came second overall twice there although he didn't make a full career out of race driving he started a stunt school uh, in uh, at a driving company in the late 1980s uh, including working on big television shows uh, such as walker texas ranger 
Uh, it is a very, very been a sad weekend for the whole of the motorsport uh, family. Can't imagine how they are all feeling. We pass our condolences uh, on to all of the Unser family, particularly to Bobby's children, Bobby and Ruby. And you're, you're all in our thoughts and our prayers at the moment. Bobby Unser Jr., who died at the weekend. All the latest motorsport news from around the world. Midweek Motorsport. And as the news bed falls into the background, our first story involves open wheel racing at the very top of its game, a world championship. So that means because of the championship that it is, we need to introduce Nick Damon because it's Formula One. Hooray! Seems a while since you've done that properly like that, Nick. I was deflating then. It's a clue. Really? <laughs> I see what you did there. It, it mm. felt like you. It felt like the edge of that went off a bit. To be honest, mate. Oh, do you think so? Yeah. No, I, was just, um, I, was just, I was just slowly. I, I just lost. I lost all my structural rigidity. Yeah. Oh, if only I'd thought about that, I would have had that. <laughs> where was it? Where was it when we? Where was Sir Jackie when we? We needed oh, yes. it. <laughs> uh, Nick Damon, we've got you on on our top story. It's always a talking point, whether it's a Porsche keys to the race, whether it's in the real world of virtual reality. Nick Damon and the tyres. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also a case of be careful what you wish for, um, because do you remember that after the incident in Baku, which saw uh, Max Verstappen uh, spin out of the race and very comedically kick his tyres at the end of the Basel 40S style, he, he said, well, I know Pirelli are going to investigate, but they're just going to blame debris. Um, they've not blamed debris. No. Uh, they've blamed operating parameters. Right. Uh, or, or more to point, the tyres not being in operating parameters uh, and in doing so have um, sparked a, what's the word for it, massive technical directive which is designed to mop up all the little things, all the teams, this makes very, very clear, this is not a Red Bull or an Aston Martin no. thing, all the things the teams right. have been doing to cheat. Right, stop, no, so cheat. stop, stop, mm. stop. Before we go no. any further, explain... Right. First of all, we have to explain that all tyre companies in pretty much all of motorsport and in particular ones where they are the sole supplier, whether it's Pirelli, Michelin, Goodyear, Hankook, whoever, they, they are very assiduous in issuing technical parameters. Yes. Um, yes. Michelin call them in, in sports car racing, they call them pre-codes. And oh, basically okay. what it says is this is the operating temperatures of each of the, uh, if there is a choice, of each of the tyres. Michelin don't talk about medium hard or hard and soft or medium and soft or super soft. They talk about the temperature range. So mm -hmm. let's actually, we've got Kevin Esther on. Um, let's see if we can talk about that later on because right. tyres were an issue at, at <laughs> WAC. So that, I'm writing that down now. Um, so, so those technical parameters, they talk about pressures, they talk yes. about suspension setup, including camber. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, and starting pressures in particular. Yeah. Now, and the thing, sorry, just, just to explain to you, just so people understand, the, the, the fact is that 
Pirelli um, want to have a minimum pressure because the, the pressure inside the tyre gives it its structural rigidity. And don't right. forget that the current F1 tyres have a very, very large sidewall compared to anything else that's actually running on a track or the road yeah, anywhere. What, what are the 13-inch rims? They're still 13-inch rims, yeah, yeah. It's the final year, of course. Mm. And so, it, and of course, also, F1 cars produce more downforce. So, they, so that there is a greater pressure on those sidewalls and more importantly, the curvature between the sidewalls and the tread. And therefore, the only thing supporting that is the tyre pressure. However, the higher the tyre pressure, the less the grip. So yeah. the teams want to get it as close to the minimum number or preferably below it while still being within the rules of when it's tested. So we're back to flexi wings again. It passes ah. the test on the static rig. It, it, yeah, no one, no one, no one is going to go to the stewards for any of this. This is all this is all fine. No one's accused of cheating. They're just accused of being F1 teams and gaming the rules, basically. Right. Uh, and so what's happened to stop them doing that? There are clearly some things that teams can do then. So, and I'm making these numbers up, but let's say for sake of argument, Pirelli yep. say at Ricard at the weekend, all right, you're starting temperatures, fronts, are going to be, and I'm sorry, I am going to use PSI because... Please do. Uh, right, okay, fine, because I don't <laughs> understand bar. I have to put everything back into PSI. Right, it's got to be 19 at the front and 21 at the back. That's your minimums. Yes. So so, yeah. so that's what they, let's let's imagine that that's what they are. How are the yeah. teams getting round that and how are well, the FIA going to combat them getting round that because clearly somebody's measuring it and it's not just the teams and they're saying yeah that that's 19 yeah that's 21. Well, there's a number of, th of course the main thing that can uh, anyone who's got basic um physics knows that um a pressure or the gas moves around the pressure goes up more um with heat. So if you if you measure a tire at a certain heat, it'll be showing more pressure uh, than it would if it was a, if it was cold. And the way you heat the tires to the way the teams have been heating the tires to pass these tests isn't the same way as the car heats the tires. Right. So it, 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 it's different parts are expanded. There's also now being mandated they cannot change the makeup of the gas inside because there's been there are a number of things you can do with gas makeups. Um, are they allowed a, to use um, nitrogen rather than air? There, there, is a, there is a mandated gas mixture which um, has apparently been. No, they suspect it could be altered. Again, no one caught, no one accused. You just can't, you definitely can't do it from now on. The other thing, of course, is that the, is that the pressures are only really checked and only checked randomly on the grid. Um, again, no one accusing anybody of anything, and it certainly wouldn't apply to the accidents in uh, Baku because it's the first set of tyres. But no one really ever checks the second set that goes on. Um, <laughs> that, you know, there is a spot check, but no one can remember anyone doing a spot check of those tyres. Um, there, so there's also ways that they they take the to actually lose temperature sometimes for for qualifying. They'll take the blankets off too early. It's supposed to be you can't take the blankets off within 30 seconds of the tyre going round. Um, but you know, it's, it's it's really, really weird because there's so many things they're just getting a 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.4 PSI, but it all adds up. And, and one thing that's interesting is that actually only starting from next year, they're going to have a tyre pressure gauge that, they could, that the FIA can monitor at the moment. The only tyre pressure gauges, or the you know, TPMs, which we all have in our cars now, are available to the teams. And But there's going to be a mandated 
uh, tire pressure gate, tire pressure measurement system as of, I think, I think it's maybe next year, it may actually be halfway through next year. So at that point, this will all go, this will all go away because they'll have real time telemetry on the tire pressures. I mean, I do feel a little bit that, uh, you know, Pirelli are covering up for some of the, their um, inadequacies, to be honest, uh, of their tire construction. Don't forget, these tires are significantly heavier than last year's just to avoid such an issue. And the downforce should not be any more than it was last year because they're still trying to claim back the stuff they've lost. But effectively, Pirelli have managed to um, to these directives must have been in mind and written beforehand. They come out very, very detailed, very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And they've obviously found the catalyst to get them in place. Right. Uh, and, and do we think clear, it was... by the way. <laughs> no, it was, but I'd, uh, uh, okay. Um, so, so no, no, it was, I, I've got so many questions if I'm honest. Um, so, are they, do you think this will make a blind bit of difference? No, because they're all doing it. Um, I, I, I was, I, I was I, fearful that you might say that. I mean, I think it, 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 what's happened, obviously, is, is it has made a difference because, because Red Bull got, had a tyre failure, which may not have happened if they hadn't been doing what everyone else is doing. Again, I'm not having a go at Red Bull. No, no, um, no. Um, they haven't been doing it, and it might not have failed. I mean, I still think that a tyre that is within, you know, fails within one psi of where it should be is. I, I still think we should be looking at Pirelli for what on earth they're doing after we've got how many years they did now? Eleven. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's my my main complaint. But yes, so Red Bull have lost, you know, twenty five points of max because it went it went pop. So yes, yeah, it's unfortunate. But yeah. Um, right, Turnover says, surely these parameters are already so tightly controlled. It, it, surely if it affected them, wouldn't every team have been affected? Or if they were outside it, they should have been disqualified. Well, you can't prove they're outside. That's the problem because they ah. don't have running tyre pressure gauges. They're going to have from, I must read the article, whether it's the beginning of next year or halfway through next year. Um, so they don't know. They're, again, they can't prove it, very similar to other issues recently. Mm-hmm. Um they shouldn't fail, even though they're that close to being um, wrong. They're absolutely right. And the reason they don't all fail is because they are on the edge of their operating parameters. And things on the edge of their operating parameters um, mostly survive. Ah. What about uh, this from Kevin Payne? Do tyre warmers have any kind of influence on that? And if so, yeah. would it make more sense if they were just banned? Well, that's a very good point. They 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 were banned. They were already been banned from cooking the tyres overnight um, because that was putting heat into the carcass and, and and falsely raising the air pressure in a way that, of course, the tyres are not heated once they're on the road because the heat mostly comes um, from the brakes. Actually, um, transmission brake brake through to it. Uh, yeah. So yeah, and the, and the the blanket. Well, the blankets were going to get banned. But that's going it's going to work again, isn't it? And I'm not overly sure. If that's necessarily the be- the right way to go, having seen other classes who use cold tires, I don't think it's. It, I think it actually makes things a little bit more difficult, um, effectively. But don't know. But yeah, no. I mean, there's, there's many things out there, but the, the way they're using the warmers absolutely is influencing, and that's going to get he- more heavily policed. What about? Um... Oh, well, I, I, this is a comment more than anything else from Alexander Orkin says, why is this tyre pressure still an issue several years after the team's messing with the pressures caused chaos several years ago? It's all about incremental adv- advantage, isn't it, Nick, really? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm sure, you know, many years ago they were sticking their thumbs in and losing two PSI. 
um you know <laughs> it, it, it'll sneaky lean down do it I've, I've i've seen i've actually seen people do that so you know <laughs> it, it wasn't very well hidden um now because it is the world of marginal gains if they can get half a psi that's that's big um you know for the car performance especially at the rear mm. and um they are you know they they you know yeah, I'm sure if you think about this, we've, we haven't had any failures really since Silverstone, the last really hard track. So in the intervening year and, and what, 15 races, 14 races since then, they've all been doing these same tricks and nothing's gone pop. Um, Dave Alcock says, astonishing that the FIA check the first set uh, of tyres, but not the second. Well, they reserve the right to, but apparently they never do. Right. Or in practice, they never have done. I'm sure I'm sure the FIA can point to examples mm. where they've tested them. But the t- it's a situation where the teams know they're not going to know it's not going to happen. You know, the, the odds of you being tested are very, very low. And the penalty for being tested, if you're found to be out, it's just you can't put that set of tyres in the car. It's not like your, your car's kicked out or anything. But this sends Dave thinking back to... We checked ground, ground clearance at the start and end of the race, but not during it debacle, which yeah. led to the adjustable suspension on the Brabham in the 1980s. And F1 ever was so. If you set, uh, yeah, it's, it's no different from, from flexible wings. There's a test. Ooh. They pass the test. Uh, but when, the, when we're actually, um, you know, real, it's different on the track. And that's the way it goes. You know, this is, this is what F1's about. F1 has, you know, brilliant minds who spend their time looking to make little gains by, you know, free gains on this by, by just making the rules work for them. Matthew Hindman has solved the problem. Oh, excellent. No, he has. Well, he's, he's solved the problem. We're going to run Caterpillar tracks. No. Well, they've all got tyre pressure monitors on them, haven't they? No, not ones that are independent. That's what's coming next year. Right. Well, then they need to... FIA, stick... FIA sealed valve pressure monitors are being introduced next right, year. Right, OK. Well, that needs to be on the TV screen. And that would oh, stop yeah, everybody. I mean, there's, no, there's, no, there's no reason why it shouldn't be. Mm. I mean, it. That, that, it should be a very, boring, it should be a very, very boring uh, readout saying 20.5, 20.5, 20.5, 20.5, shouldn't it? it shouldn't, there shouldn't be a... The other thing that you would get is the, if you, the FIA will get advanced warning of a tyre going down for, for, for genuine reasons. Yes. Throw a yeah. black and orange flag out. Yeah, and pull them in. Absolutely. Uh, all good stuff. At Speculatement, please, for more of that. And that. We'll, actually, do you know what? We'll, we'll, we'll stick with Formula One Ooh, uh, okay. at the moment. Um, right. We've got Paul <laughs> Ricard at the weekend. Talk about that in a moment. Um, who's just signed an extension? And I don't mean he's, he's put a signature on somebody's back wall. Well, it's not difficult, really, because the French Grand Prix is coming up mm. and the French team has, signed, has re-signed a French driver. There you go. Um, but, but the only interesting thing, of course, is that if you go back just, uh, well, just to the start of pre-season, um, the big rumour was that Esteban Ocon, who we're talking about, who's signed for another three years uh, with Alpine, at least one of those partnering Fernando Alonso, um, the big rumour was that Ocon was in a bit of strife um, after a difficult year against Danny Rick last year. And it was likely what actually Alpine wanted to do was sign up Pierre Gasly, who, of course, had a very, very good year. Um, But Ocon has raised his game. Gasly, don't get me wrong, Gasly's been pretty good this year as well. But Ocon's kind of raised his game. Um, He's taken himself out of the 
left field replacement for uh, Lewis Hamilton because that's he was a Mercedes team driver for a long time. And he was, and I think he's still under in um, Toto Stable actually. So he was he was theoretically someone who could replace uh, Valtteri Bottas or Lewis Hamilton. Valtteri Bottas, obviously, um, but uh, yeah, so that's not um, that, that's not happening. But he's got the and Pierre looks like he may have to stay at uh, Alpha Tauri and listen to the mad ramblings of her of Helmut Mark over another year. Mm. Yes, uh, Ricard at the weekend. Still people mm-hmm. there, of course, from three years ago who've still never been yep. able to get out. Uh, it's well, going to be hot this weekend. Very hot, very hot yeah. indeed. Well, very hot indeed tends to favour. Um, Red Bull over Mercedes. A real track tends to favour Mercedes over Red Bull, as we've seen recently. It's billiard smooth because uh, they've resurfaced it, believe it or not. They, they have and done it's the, quick. The layout is similar. They've, they've done some work on the cambers and the corners oh, and the op- runoffs. Yeah, they did work during the last year's laydown to just try and make things a little bit easier to overtake, a little more interesting for the driver. So they've done that thing which. Um, who was it was talking about? Was it the guy who, did, who designed Dubai who was talking about trying to design mistake induced into the track? Error inducing corners. Yes, absolutely. They've, they've, they've done that with cambers and car, not cars, cambers and um, runoffs and, and curbs. They've tried to make the corners more difficult. Because okay. um, obviously, being a test track, you don't actually want your corners to be difficult. You want your corners to be consistent so, so the car can go around them the same way every single time. Fair For point. a racetrack, that's not what you want. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's gonna, I think we, we're not going to see the big difference between uh, Red Bull and um so you've seen the last two street circuits i still think ripple got the faster car um but certainly on saturday they got the faster car sunday it's it's more of a kind of a, a toss-up but of course this is the beginning of a triple header because we're going in we, we follow week we're at styria which is austria and then we were at austria austria uh so we've got they got three in a row after after a week off so yeah they're, they're banging them out quick as possible um as they're still very very concerned about what the calendar is going to do once we leave europe yeah, Tfalk55 says, uh, following up what um, uh, Hyman said earlier, said, uh, I wonder if tyre pressure from the FIA sensors will be fed into the data for the tyre oh, wear on. Of course there will. Yeah, of course more, of information, course. More, more information is better. Um, and it, it's one of the things that I was on my high horse about the WEC. We'll talk about that with JP in our uh, two tonight. Nick, don't go too far away because I'd like to do a bit of bikes if you don't mind, in yeah, sure. in this first hour. Um, but I'd like to say hello to Shea Adam. Hello, Shea. Hello, Shea. Oh. So, uh, no Shea Adam uh, over there. Um, let me just remind you then... That coming up after us tonight, uh, we will have historic racing news. It is the uh, June edition, and uh, on this week's show, the team are taking a somewhat nostalgic look back. And why wouldn't you on a show that's called Historic Racing News? Uh, they are taking an histor- a, a nostalgic look back at the car that first won Le Mans overall for Porsche, that being the mighty, the fearsome, the remarkable, and actually pretty scary to drive, Porsche 917. Uh, So that is coming up after us tonight at 10 o'clock, straight after us this evening. Hello, Shay. Hello. Ah, there we go. Uh Uh, All all on Hindhoff's fingers, you see. All went all went a bit pear shaped there. Um, <laughs> how's things with you in Utah? 
Uh, pretty good. It's quite warm out here. Uh, yesterday, the high was about 103, and I was outside working on a Jeep, so it was lovely. I was happy. Uh, let's talk about American racing. And okay. It was a very busy weekend with both IMSA and IndyCar, and indeed NASCAR, uh, working mm. uh, this weekend. Let's start with IndyCar and the doubleheader at Detroit Belle Isle, which, if nothing else, was dramatic. Uh, very, very much so. Uh, the lead-in to the IndyCar race, uh, race number one, was actually professional lacrosse, which I will put my hand up right now and say I did not know that that league existed in the U.S., we and it was a very that. good game. We didn't get that no. in the U.K. We got the start of the race. Oh, no. It was, and then it Diffie was really and Townsend Bell reset the pause for a moment and reset and welcomed everybody on the yeah. channel. Well, thankfully, the lacrosse game didn't run too far over. It was only about halfway through lap one when NBC abruptly dumped into the race, which I'm grateful they did because I didn't want to miss any more of the racing. But they did go from professional lacrosse to a commercial break to the race. And if they had skipped the commercial break, which a lot of people were talking about on Twitter, uh, they would have been able to catch the start of the race. But hey, all is good. Mm -hmm. A very dramatic race, as you rightly say, a scary crash for Felix Rosenfest who it looked like stuck throttle. There's a lot of different uh, discussion going on as to what actually was the well, part that what, failed on that car. And what that means, because, of course, there's no connection from yes. the pedal to the, the engine. It's fly-by-wire. So when you say stuck throttle, yes, there has to be some mechanical parts there. But what does that mean? Was that a failure of software? We had Jimmy Johnson, who had a sensor 30%. failure and was driving around with 30%. And trust yeah. me, and no matter how slow you're going, 30% and not being able to control it is much better than 100% and not being able to control it. Completely agree. And and it is important to say that Felix uh, was kept in the hospital overnight. He has been released. He is okay. He's not clear to drive yet for Road America this weekend. And if you saw the hit, you can understand why. Mm. Um, but that wasn't the only technological failure we had during the course of the race. Will Power... When he came back in, uh, they threw a second red flag, it's important to say. Romain Grosjean went into the wall and race control threw a red flag, bringing in the entire field to the pit lane with about five laps to go. Will Power immediately got on the radio saying, fan, fan, fan. He got out of the car. Uh, well, he waited in the car. But then after the race, he got out of the car and immediately blamed IndyCar race control for not allowing his crew to come over quickly enough and said that the ECU had basically melted. As it turns out, that's not entirely what happened. And basically, if you shut the car off improperly, it doesn't want to restart. Ah. It's very much like your normal desktop computer where you kind of have to press control alt delete a few times to get up the blue safety me menu. Um, Will Power's car went into a uh-uh mode. <laughs> right. So that's very interesting. Very interesting indeed. Um, I... I, I just a, there's been because of what happened with Christian Eriksen this time last week in in yeah. the football. There's been a lot of debate about um, TV companies and how they cover serious incidents that might mm. involve um, very serious injury. What was what was the if any fallout for NBC who in the first six or seven laps, took two or three ad breaks and then stayed live for nearly 30 minutes on a crash where they didn't know what injuries the driver had. 
Well, I didn't see very much response to that on social media after the fact. When it was going on, as Felix was being attended to by the IndyCar medical crew, the safety crew, and by the way, hats off to those people who every week they are keeping our drivers safe, and that is the most important thing out there. Um, the, The most disturbing part of Felix's incident wasn't the aerial shots, which were useful. You could see that the crew was working to extract him. You could see when they actually had him out of the car. It was disturbing from a perspective of people I love are involved in racing, and I don't ever want to see those footages of my friends and family. Um, But the thing that really upset me, John, was when they went to the in-car, and I understand why they did it. They wanted to show that Felix was conscious, he was moving around, that he wasn't knocked out, but he was in pain, yeah. and that was not easy to see, particularly when you consider this race was being broadcast on big NBC. Yeah. There were a lot of people who were channel flipping and turning on to see that. It's not something that leaves you very easily. Ultimately, uh, the weekend on Saturday belonged to? Mr. Marcus Erickson, and First time I winner. am so pumped up for this because... Brad Goldberg is his race engineer. And Brad Goldberg was the engineer on the 67 Ford GT for Ryan Briscoe and Richard Westbrook. He's been with Chip Ganassi Racing forever and a day. And by the way, this now means that three out of four of Chip Ganassi's IndyCar drivers have won a race this year. Talk about variety and success for the big man. He's got it right now. Remind me to talk about Chip Ganassi race engineers when we get on to IMSA uh, as well. So Sunday, okay. so, so that delayed uh, IMSA, we'll, we'll come to that in a moment. Uh, okay. IMSA working really hard to, to keep everybody informed and ultimately we got the IMSA race off about an hour, hour and 10 minutes later. Um, than it should have been, maybe a little bit more uh, than than that. So, uh, and we got the full race in, and we'll talk about that yeah. in a sec. So Sunday comes around; it's a whole new day. <laughs> Felix can't drive because he yep. was uh, still being looked after. Although I think he was out of hospital by. Um... Was he he was in the hospital until about, about Sunday the lunchtime. Began. All right, okay, yeah. fine. Yes, there was some debate about whether he might turn up. So the guys rebuilt his car. And needed a driver. So, who are you going to call? Oliver Askew. Ghostbusters. Now, yeah, Oliver um, Askew, kind of almost Ghostbusters Oliver Askew. It's not <laughs> quite the same. The problem being, of course, he'd not sat in that car since the last time he drove it last season. Yep. He'd never raced anything at Belle Isle. So, there was no practice on Sunday. All the practice was earlier on in the weekend. And so there was a 10-minute qualifying session. And that was it for Oliver. And Oliver stepped up and delivered. He was wearing his helmet, which he had with him because he's doing some help for uh, Indy Lights, a championship that he's previously won, keep in mind. He had to borrow Juan Montoya's fire suit. That did not fit him very well. And he had to borrow uh, Alex Palou's shoes to be able to drive. And uh, Oliver got in the car, put his head down, and did exactly what you'd expect of him. He was about a second off in qualifying of where he could have maybe progressed to the next round. But he, as as you rightly say, John, he had no experience at this track. He did such a good job that his phone actually rang for this week's IndyCar race, which is going to be taking place at Road America. And spoiler alert, 
it's not the same team who wanted him back. He was actually poached away by Ed Carpenter Racing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it wasn't the fairy tale again in another different driver that won. We had our first repeat winner on the season on Sunday. Very well-deserved, a heck of a drive from Pato Award. And by the way, his second win at Belle Isle because he won in 2017 in an IMSA prototype challenge car, the year that he and James French went on to win that championship. So everybody's saying, oh, first time winner at Belle Isle. Nope, nope, not quite. Um, But Pato drove like a bat out of hell on the last restart Passed Dixon in a very impressive move going into turn one. Then a lap later did the exact same pass, except I think it was Pagano. He came flying up through the field, took the lead away from Joseph Newgarden and said, no, this one's mine. It was impressive. He's now the championship points leader going into Road America when the last time they raced there, he looked set for his first ever win and got passed on pretty much the last lap. Can't wait to see what Pato can do this week. Uh, didn't quite get the rub of the green and he and Tim Sindrick had to kind of work stuff out on the fly. They could have done with going a few laps longer in the first stint. They went black, black, red. Most everybody else went either black, red, black or red, black, black. So he was on the wrong tyres at the end, but, you know, fantastic drive for him to to get uh, the points that he did. Um, Thoroughly enjoyed the, the whole the whole race, and Pato was just... I said to Eve when he restarted in fifth, he's going to win this. He's yeah. absolutely going to win this. Uh, I felt for Joseph a little bit because they were kind of messed about by the yellows, but, uh, you know, a hey-ho, that's the way it goes. Uh, so Rosenqvist not coming back this weekend for Road America. I'm looking forward to that. It's already set up on the on the hard drive to, to, uh, to be in there, and... So uh, Oliver Askew will be back in for him again, is he? Uh, no, Oliver Askew's phone started ringing because Renus VK was riding a bicycle and he departed the bicycle on Monday during a training ride. Oh, He's goodness. been under the care of the IndyCar medical staff, actually had outpatient surgery. I think that was earlier today. Um, he's repaired a fractured left clavicle, John. You know very much how, how much that hurts. Um, they are in a bit of a time crunch. And Renus comes into this weekend fifth in points. So this is going to really hurt his uh, season as a whole, which is a shame because he's been running very well. But Oliver Askew is in that Chevy, which means that Schmidt peterson mclaren have an opening and they filled it with another driver whose family lineage began in IndyCar also in McLaren and uh, whose Formula One career began in McLaren. Yeah, it's Kevin Magnussen, and which is the lovely link to take us into IMSA uh, because uh, K-Mag will be in for Rosenquist at the weekend. It's an IMSA weekend off. Uh, he marked his debut on the... Uh, track at Belle Isle with a pole position, a phenomenal first stint, yeah. and then followed up by what we've come to accept from Renga von der Zander, uh, expect from Renga, and the victory. So that was a double over the weekend, two out of three of the races for uh, Chip Ganassi Racing. And I said we have to talk about the crew chief because the crew, crew chief on that 0-1 also has family ties to IMSA. I love this. So if you are familiar with the the history of IMSA and the number three Corvette in particular, 
The one of the drivers for about the last 20 years has been Jan Magnussen. The crew chief has been Danny Binks. Both men retired at the same time, stepped away, basically, in effect. Um, the winner of this weekend was Kevin Magnussen getting his first IMSA win with crew chief getting his first IMSA win as crew chief. Danny Binks's oldest son. I just, I love how well this all plays out together. And we should say, by the way, the Binks name has been in IMSA for a while. And we mentioned Ford earlier. Well, it was Ford was where Binks Jr. was plying his trade, but he wasn't crew chiefing. He was working as an over the wall mechanic and tire changer. So this is a big step up, but it's a pretty cool bit of family history carrying on. Yes. Very good. Very good. Indeed. Um, and as far as IMSA is concerned, uh, just 100 minutes of racing at the weekend. But my goodness, what a what 100 minutes worth waiting for, I would have said. Very much so, yeah. Um, we had, as, as you rightly say, we started off with uh, Kevin Magnuson on pole position. We've had 11 different pole setters this year, if you count the one driver qualifying session. We've had 11 different drivers as pole setters across all those different categories. And it really set it up. Uh, Kevin drove away from the field. He did a magnificent job at the head of the grid. And the racing at the front the entire way through was just captivating. Basically split the race up into two for all the prototypes, which was not something I was expecting. I I thought it was going to be a very different strategy uh, since the minimum drive time was so much lower. But it was just a knockout, dragout fight. And at the end of the day, we had Felipe Nazar throwing in fast lap after fast lap after fast lap trying to catch Ranger. But Ranger wanted that win more than anyone else on track. And it just wound up being a really cool race at the front. Uh, and uh, in the other classes, uh, we had effectively a <clears throat> development run for uh, uh, or a demonstration run. Sorry, is what I was trying to say mm. for Corvette, because that was not a championship uh, race for them but in GT uh, the race and, and actually funny enough the, the race was affected after the checkered flag um, yeah. and it was something that you mentioned in in the pit stop actually <laughs> yeah you know after so many years of calling pit stops things just stand out to me as looking kind of weird but uh, I should say off the start um, there was a lot of discussion going on because Richard Highstand was clear of one Corvette and then both Corvettes going into turn one, there was no jump start penalty called. And it was the same move, a very similar move that we saw at the mobile one twelve hours, the Sebring by pole sitter, Jan Halen at that Institute uh, situation where Jan moved out of lanes. We saw Richard move out of lanes. It triggered a bit of chaos behind the Corvettes did not do as they were instructed to do off the start. That's why race control didn't call the penalty. At least that's what I've been informed of. But as the race was going on, the Audi, the Richard Highstand and Jeff Westfall Audi was basically untouchable. They came in and did their pit stop, did not change tires. And the car sat in the box after the fuel probe came out. It was a good three seconds before the car began to roll back down the pit lane. It was about mm, two laps after everybody else really started to come in and do their pit stops that the Audi came in. And yet the time spent on pit lane was still relatively low. Well, you would think that's just because they didn't change tires. No, you're still dictated on your pit lane time based on how you're feeling. There's a minimum refueling time. The Carbon team did not meet that minimum refueling time. And given that the probe came out early and the car still sat in the box and their time on pit lane 
was still low compared to everybody else, it triggered a couple of uh, things needing to be looked at. And ultimately, that team is back. They will be back at the Salem in six hours at the Glen. Uh, when I talked with Jeff Westfall and Tyler McQuarrie a couple weeks ago, they informed me that they would be dueling with uh, Richard Highstand as well for this six-hour race. We'll see what happens for them in this one or if they're just continuing to do the sprint only after uh, this race is complete. Of course, that would only mean missing out uh, Petit Le Mans. But the win went the way of the heart of racing Aston Martin. And there were three cars all race in GTD, John, that did not have issues. Those three cars wound up on the podium. Nine out of 12 GTD cars had some sort of issue over the course of the race, whether it was penalty, contact, whatever. It's very interesting that the only three who stayed clean were the only three who came away with trophies. Yeah, congratulations to to Gradient because, I mean, we called them home in fourth. That would have been their best, but they get on the podium. So, Andres uh, and the the rest of the, Andres Levin and the rest of the team, there and that's Dex as well because he's he's part of that. He looks after their their PR. I mean, just fantastic for them and great for Heart of Racing as well. Listen, we're not supposed to have favourites and we kind of don't have favourites, but those they're, they're two great stories. I feel sorry for the guys at, at Carbon, but you know what? Whatever happened, as you said, it looked like they might have realised something mm-hmm. had had gone wrong. But but um, you know. Uh, there was a nice story on the other end of it, and that's the first Aston Martin win, of course. Yes, it is, and that leaves the only manufacturer without a win in GTD as McLaren. We don't have any McLarens running this year, so that's kind of why that makes sense. But McLaren did compete last year, so they are in my notebook. Um, But nice to get the mark in the Aston Martin column. Nice for Ross Gunn to get his first win uh, in America in IMSA. And nice for Roman DeAngelis to get a home win. He grew up basically just across the river. So it's pretty cool to see so many different things for Roman DeAngelis, like local hamburger joints that have congratulations, no Roman DeAngelis. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty mega. Um, so for that team, I'm very pumped. And, and as you said, I'm a little bit heartbroken for Gradient, though, John, because Mark Miller had his wife and kids at the track. Yeah, he's a local lad as well, cool. isn't he? Exactly. So that would have been pretty cool for him to stand on the podium up there. But he has won in IMSA before. He's gotten trophies. He knows how how to do it. For Till, it was a big day. Uh, Let's look forward uh, to a couple of weeks' time. We'll look at the the lineups, um, the full lineups for Watkins Glen and the Salem Six Hours. We've got two weekends consecutively, or, or two race meetings consecutively at Watkins Glen. But the first one is the big one. That's the Sill and Six Hours. Then we go to the shorter race that's filling in for Canadian Time Motorsport Park, which is, by the way, on Thursday and Friday of uh, not next weekend, but the weekend after. We'll remind you about that next week. But we have got some news. uh, And welcome back to NTE. Yeah, they ran at the uh, Daytona 24 Hours, the Rolex, back in January. That was Andrew Davis, Alan Metney, J.R. Hildebrand, and Don Yoon. Well, Don is staying in the car. He is being joined by Jaden Conright, who's making his WeatherTech debut. He debuted in Pilot Challenge last year. And then Marcus Peltola, a guy who's very good at the Six Hours of the Glen. He's got two previous wins there. But the Audi is back, and we'll see just how competitive it can be. Uh, and uh, yes, indeed. So Hale and Hardwick uh, in Mission and pa- uh, ah, Pilot Challenge. Yes. Now this is right. This is a bit of a shuffle. This is this is the John Wright shuffle. 
<laughs> yes, and this is a big story that broke this morning. Trent Hinman is going to be the full season partner for the rest of the year for Patrick Long in the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. Hardwick and Halen are going to be focusing on the uh, Michelin, Proto- uh, Michelin Pilot Challenge. But, of course, Halen and Hardwick both missed the first race. Hardwick missed the second race as well. They're not really making a charge at the championship. They're going out there just trying to win races. It is interesting, though, that they already had Halen under the umbrella and they chose to bring in Trent. So my guess, my gut feeling, is that they want Jan Halen to focus more on driving with Ryan Hardwick, coaching him, bringing him up to try and get him ready to a point when when he comes back to GTD, he's challenging week in and week out for wins. Copy. Uh, And, ah, yes, now... We have the Transformers car coming in a couple of weekends' time. It's a year and a half late, but hey, it's here. Uh, D3 plus Transformers. They made their announcement, uh, well, I would say last year, but it was actually December the year before, I think, that they were coming in. They were going to be running Daytona. It's finally here. Ian and Simon Dawson are D3. This Transformers car that we'd heard about, it is going to be making its debut. An LMP3 machine, Theodore Olsen, a Norwegian driver, will be sharing with Ben Devlin for the shorter races. And then they're adding in Dominic Cicero, a driver that we're familiar with from the IMSA Prototype Challenge from the last couple of years. They're going to be running a Ligier. So initially it was supposed to be an LMP3 car because when it was announced, there was no... uh, it was supposed to be LMP2 because when the announcement was made, LMP3 was not in WeatherTech. Now it is an LMP3 car, and uh, we'll see just what they can do. But we know Ben. We know he's very, very competitive, and he's a good coach. Theodore is young. He's got radical racing experience. We'll see what he does in the prototype. Uh, Nick and I have been meaning to go across to Ben's uh, pub, which is a nice little hour, an hour and 20 minutes ride over because he's still doing two-wheeled Tuesdays, so I think we might have to do that uh, now that the weather's decent. That that would uh, mean, though, Nick Damon, that you would have to get your bike serviced and MOT'd. Tuesday. <laughs> Tuesday. Tuesday, it's going in, serviced, MOT'd, you're up and running. I'm sure they're going to do me for a tyre. But, you know, as, as I currently having a situation with, with my bikes and cars in many, many pieces in the workshop floors of many, many dealers at the moment... I have a lone bike and a lone car. Right, we'll we'll leave we'll leave you uh, to that. Let's uh, finish up with a couple of other big stories. Uh, a new C8R for Corvette. Unfortunately, it's not to go to a customer. Everybody has <coughs> sat up and listened really carefully there, Shane. Yep. Well, you know, unfortunately not for a customer. Fortunately. For uh, Tommy Milner and Nick Tandy, it's going to become their car as the car that they were racing last weekend is going to be sent across to Europe at some point coming up here soon. That car will be the 64 machine at Le Mans. The 63 car, that will be Antonio, uh, Jordan, and Nikki's car at Le Mans, has been in Europe since that race at, um, it was Spa, wasn't it? Yeah. That the Corvette ran. Yep. So that car is still is still over there, which means that Corvette has to send a new one or send one over. 
build a new one to race over here. The month of August is going to be quite busy as is because we race at Road America the first weekend. Then we've got Le Mans the second and third weekends. And then there's a week off before coming back over. And it's not like we're racing on the East Coast back off of Le Mans. We have to go all the way to California. So things get a little bit too complicated logistics wise. Corvette said, now, you know what? We're just going to build a new one. We were going to do it in the off season. We'll do it now. Uh, we've had a couple of BOP changes for Michelin Pilot Challenge. McLaren have had 40 kilos added and a 20 mil ride height increase. Not sure which one of those will hurt the most, but that's pretty, uh, pretty, uh, pretty uh, draconian for both of those. Yeah. Uh, and a 25k for the Supra as well. That's that's kind of surprised me that actually. It is. That car has been very fast, particularly in the hands of Scott Andrews at Mid-Ohio. The other drivers, um, not necessarily at the same professional level as Scott Andrews, and I'm taking nothing away from them by saying that. Scott has a Rolex from this year. He's a very, very good, fast driver. There were slight fuel changes in, in the form of increase for the Mercedes competitors and the Ford GT. They've changed some of the engine mapping. They've done a few changes in TCR. But the big thing is that McLaren and why you might be asking, well, McLaren drivers are currently first and third in the championship with McLaren having won two of the first three races. So this was a swing. But honestly, I can't help but feel like Yes, the cars are being slowed down a little bit, but the teams have just been doing such a good job so far this year, both AWA and NIA. I, I don't know how this is going to play out. Uh, and we have seen uh, some first drafts and well over 130 cars for not this weekend, Jeez. but next weekend. Yep, uh, 40 cars as far as the Salem six hours of the Glen is concerned with an interesting mix of people choosing to go with either two drivers or three in the pro categories because that is an option. Two drivers for Cadillac Racing, Chip Ganassi, Connick Minolta, Acura, and Meyer Shank Racing. The other four cars in class, and yes, I said four because mm. Jimmy Johnson's car is back once again. Those cars are all running multiple drivers. They all have three on hand. You have to have three drivers in LMP2, LMP3, and GTD, but Corvette Racing have only two drivers listed under each of their cars. So if it's a warm weekend, they could find themselves regretting that as BMW and, of course, the Porsche. Well, all three of those cars have three drivers apiece. Thank you, Cher. We'll talk to you next week. Uh, enjoy the rest of the week. We'll go through that in, in detail next week as we're getting ready for our IMSA radio coverage of the Salem Six Hours weekend. Cheers. Sounds good. Bye. Bye. Back off to the Jeep now. Uh, the rock crawler suspension is already on there. Nick Damon has been listening to all of that. Can we do two wheels, Nick, if yes. you don't mind? Uh, mm. World Superbikes at the weekend at the uh, Simoncello circuit at, uh, uh, at Rimini. Simoncelli. Uh, Simoncelli, sorry, <laughs> yes. Um, uh, and uh, do you know, it's a funny circuit, that. It sometimes yes, doesn't but, race yeah. very well. Even for cars, it's nigh on impossible to pass. It's not that easy for bikes. But actually, I was quite entertained by the three superbike races, at least. Yeah, we had the um, we had the same I think the same four riders in the top four positions. I haven't got all results in front of me, which was um, unsurprisingly Johnny Ray, Scott Redding, mm. uh, top prep, Raz Gattilogu, close, well, well done, and uh, Michael Ruben Rinaldi, but not in the order anyone really expected. Um, Ruben Rinaldi, who um, effectively got his ride with Ducati on the back of one great weekend at Aragon and since then has been 
okay. Uh, put together another great weekend. Uh, won the first two races and just missed out on the third. So he got two wins in second for Ducati. Uh, top rack got two seconds in the first. And I don't remember ever seeing Johnny Ray get three thirds. Mm. Um, but, you know, and I think Scott Redding got three fourths. So, yeah, it was a it was a great performance by Ronaldo. I didn't. I'm not. I'm not massively fond of the track, to be honest, John. But um, it's interesting because it was a good. It was a good. They tightened the championship up. It's just a 20 point lead now for Jonathan Ray over Top Brack. Um, Scott Ray dropped down to third. But again, Johnny Ray realised, you know, it wasn't his day. This wasn't his track, and just maximised what he could get out of it. And, and in fairness, so Top Brack, but of course, he's already dropped points prior to this. So. You know, that world championship build is still going with Johnny Ray, but it does look like he can have a bit more of a scrap than had seen evidence from the first couple of rounds. Uh, I liked Top Rack, Radzgadlioglu. I liked his attitude at the weekend. Scott Redding seems to have his head back in the right place. Great to see Michael Rubin Rinaldi doing what we've expected him to do for quite quite some time. It's really boiling up rather nicely there. I think we have got a championship uh, worthy of, of the name this year, I, I I really do. This weekend, we welcome back Motor GP, yes. and they are at the at... test. They're at the Saxon Ring, yes. the strange left-handed narrow track, shortest which, track on the, uh, on the calendar as well. Yeah, where where um, it didn't take place last year during COVID times, but the previous nine times it's taken place, and Mark Marquez has taken part in the various uh, formulae. Um, he's won. He's won nine in a row through one, two, five, GP two, GP two. Sorry, Moto two and Moto GP. So um, he and the Honda has won the three prior to that. I think he's got eleven on the spin. Uh, Honda have in the top class. They won with Danny Pedrosa three times in a row. So they can't win this weekend with their bike or get on the podium. Then they probably are looking at becoming a claiming team next year. Yes, this is what we talked about. Uh, last week as well. It sparked off a bit of a debate, has it not, about the nature of GP circuits because the old Saxon ring, of course, was a phenomenal public road circuit. Not oh, yeah. actually, unlike Bruno, mm. um, which also did two and three wheels because they ran motorcycle combinations as well, motorcycles and sidecars, not that they really were like that. An 8.6-kilometre track, and the East German Grand Prix was there from 1961 to 72. Ernst Degner uh, won the first 125 race there using what was then MZ's advanced two-stroke technology. Uh, and, of course, he defected to the West and took that technology with him to Suzuki. Extraordinary. And got, and got some corners named after him. Indeed, he did. Now, we are going to go back sort of to a road track because uh, coming up, isn't it, next year we've got a, a sort of a hybrid circuit, the Indonesia Mandalika Street yeah. Circuit coming up. Yes, it's, 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 it's been put off this year, isn't it? It's, it's 22 it's to be, now, yeah, 2022. It's supposed to be this year. Yeah, I mean, I, the thing is that... The fact is that yeah, the, the, the there is, there are even being amendments made this this year. They're talking about what they're going about about the TT and making that more accessible and, and a bit safer. But yeah, it's a 37 mile track. We were, we've been lucky enough to to drive round the old Bruno. Um, and if you ever get a chance to be up at Bruno, there's a fabulous memorial to yeah. um, and commemoration, not just memorial to all the but the bike races that we found. Every, every winner, every yeah. winner on a, on pieces of. Black, beautiful black granite. Everyone on two, three, and four wheels, and everyone who lost their lives, including 
tragically, of course, and why it was stopped being used, um, some spectators and some very young spectators. Mm. It's up on the yeah. uphill hairpin about uh, halfway around. Yes, but I mean, uh, yeah, the bikes you know, do play themselves to road circuit, hence the whole road, road, road racing element. But um, yeah, it's just a bit unfortunate. I think there's a kind of a situation where um, you know, it's just not safe to do it, even though bikes actually work very well on the roads, I think. I, I think they work much better on the roads than, than cars these days. Could you go somewhere... <sighs> I think, obviously, not Monaco or Baku. Although, you know, they still race at Macau, don't they? And, and their safety well, Macau is the awful. one, isn't it? Macau is the one. Um... But, it, but it's awful. Their, their, their safety record's awful. But I, I think it's somewhere more like Albert Park, where it's a, it's a wide-open space, and the walls aren't that close in most places. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, or, or on a similar level as the Montreal circuit, the Montreal doesn't, connect, kind of doesn't seem to really embrace motorcycle racing that much. I'm sure I'll get a stream of comments on Twitter about that now. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think it'd be, it'd be nice to see a little, little bit of variation. The, it, it, it is a fact that the MotoGP tracks are the least, var- are much less varied than, than F1 tracks because they also have a very prescriptive, for obvious reason, safety-wise, yeah. how corners and curbs and runoffs and everything else works. So it's quite a, it's a much more standardised look to everything. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they could find a way of putting in a kind of a, a, a safely, putting in a couple of more interesting concepts and designs. I think it'd be great, absolutely. Uh, Nick, don't go too far away. Uh, looks like we've already hit nine o'clock. So uh, that means it's time to head in to hour two on Midweek Motorsport. Midweek Motorsport. Half time. And while we swap ends, here's what's coming up. How appropriate whilst we've got the Euros on uh, at the moment. Nick will be back uh, to talk team orders in motorsport. It was a talking point over the weekend in the FIA WEC. We'll get Johnny Palmer in on that as well as we look at some more sports car news as well. Uh, we've got your uh, tweets as well, at Specutim and Dave Alcock. The last thing you want to see on the steering wheel display when starting a race car is the computer did not shut down correctly. Press F1 to run check this on C. Say something about the sophistications of the cars nowadays, talking about that problem in the IndyCar. And hello to Blurfeed, who's been repairing a tear can this afternoon. You need to tell me what went wrong with that, because I quite fancy one of those. And that looks in a bigger state of disrepair than Nick's RS7. On RadioLeMond.com. Just after nine o'clock on a Wednesday, it is time for the big interview. And delighted to say that joining us uh, on the line is Kevin Estra. What a few weeks and what a couple of years for Kevin. Uh, first of all, I know you've had the WEC in between, but has that Nürburgring 24-hour race, has that all sunk in yet, Kevin? Uh, yeah, well, it, it, thank you for having me first. Uh, it's um, yeah, It took some time, and, and the fact to have the WEC race just, just after, uh, let's say, brings you back to, to reality quickly. So there was no, you know, and, and Corona and everything, no big party, no. no. So it's a bit of, um, I mean, uh, yeah, different than, than when you uh, when you won a 24-hour race, let's say, two or three years ago. It's, it's a little different now. How was it for you? Obviously, we had to change our plans in the, in the coverage. Um, how was it for you with that stoppage? W- were you able to get more 
more rest or did you have to be ready just in case? And, 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 and did it mean that you had to refocus yourself when we got going again in the morning? Yeah, it was a bit weird. To be honest, we were all waiting. I think around 10 o'clock, they, they announced that they will know, there will be no restart uh, before 7 and they will tell us at 6 in the morning, let's say. Uh, 6 in the morning would be the new info and no restart before 7. So then we, okay, we watched some, uh, you know, some, some data a little bit, spoke with the, what would be the, the restart plan with the engineers, and then we all went to the hotel as drivers. So uh, let's say we had a, a quite an easy, easy life uh, in the in the night from the 24. The engineers and mechanics stayed longer, but uh, now for me, I, I slept actually quite good because the race was stopped. You know, it's always for me it was is always it's tough to to sleep during the 24 especially when you're doing well, because I always think uh, what can happen, whatever. But now I knew nothing can happen. The car was in the garage. So uh, it helped me, actually. I, I slept quite well, uh, I think, until five or something like this. And then I couldn't sleep anymore. I, uh, yeah. So from, let's say, 11 to, to five, which is great for a 24-hour race. Uh, and getting back started, was it? did you have to have a different almost a different mindset because it's not a 24-hour race anymore then. I know that all 24-hour races are sprints, but the car was was serviced, it was ready to go, and effectively you had a a three-and-a-half-hour run to the chequered flag. Yeah, it was it was very very different to what we normally experience on the 24. Um, it's always a sprint to the or often a sprint to the end anyway, or a, a long sprint the 24 hour. But now you know there's a start. You know everybody close together, no gap, different strategy. You have to find the right tire, and you know if you do one mistake, you're you're done. Mm. Um, and it's not within the flow from the race. It's like everybody stops, so you have no info about the track condition. You know you know. You don't know how the track evolved during the night, um, and and it was pretty much yeah a restart. It I took it like a to be honest like a, a VLN race which yes. which with a big with a huge or NLS race with a with a huge uh, pressure and and um, or pressure I don't know but uh, with with the will to win uh, for sure bigger than any any race you start. But but I took it a bit, and I think everybody took it a bit like an NLS, a new start, short race, give it, give it everything, and um, yeah. I, I I watched those races, and this was my fifteenth time for the Nurburgring Twenty Four, um, talking about the race in some way, shape, or or form. And I watched... Congratulations, that's a good number. <laughs> yeah, uh, 2007 was the first time it was happened to be held on the, the anniversary of, uh, the first anniversary of, of my wedding to Eve, and that we were both there. So it was a strange wedding anniversary present for her. And I'll come on to family in a moment. But, but um, I watch how it's developed down through the years and how the cars, even in the last eight, five years, have got quicker and quicker. These GT3 cars around there are absolutely awesome, Kevin. And you yeah. know, do, do you guys realise the sort of times that you're doing on the Nordschleifer itself? I, I think, what are you spending on the Nordschleifer? Six and a half minutes or something yeah, like that? If something that? like this. Yeah, yeah, just under, I would say, I think just under six and a half minutes. A good time is just under six and a half that's, or around six and a half. That's extraordinary, isn't it? For a GT3 yeah. car. Yeah, with with the with the amount of power we have, because 
you know, the last five years they've been reducing, or let's say seven years, they've been reducing the power uh, from the GT3 every second year or every third year from 5%. Um, and um, and the grip we have is is just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. At first, the track the track improved the last years because they repaved, they resurfaced. There's mm-hmm. not the jump in Flugplatz. Um, the tires improve uh, every year. The cars, let's say, is within the homologation, but we improve the setup. Yeah. And uh, and the corner speed is just incredible, really. This this uh, this fast corners, Flugplatz, Schwedenkreuz, Mutkurve. Oh. Is is crazy, really, really crazy, and and I think that's why we all love it because because you have no nowhere else a track like this where you take Correct. so much pleasure and so much adrenaline kick within lap driving. That's interesting. For my side, I, I think that's interesting you say that because I think one of the reasons that we enjoy watching it so much is there is no doubt in my mind having driven. When you drive round it yourself, and I said this in the commentary, anybody who gets a chance to do a, a tourist far and to do a tourist lap, you must do it because even at a slow speed, it will completely change your view of what we see you guys doing. And I don't think anybody honestly believes that we can do what you can do. <laughs> where outside passes at Schwedenkreuz, and not just one that last two weekends ago, yeah. you know, several uh, side by side through mud curve and l- fant- and these are big cars, Kevin. They are very yeah. wide cars. It, it and almost... notch life is notch life is not bright is not wide. You know, there's some some corners. Schwedenkreuz is let's say one of the widest part of the track. Mutkurve is very very narrow. Yeah. Uh, Metzgesfeld very narrow. So it's is very when you're side by side, there's no. Mo- not much room uh, to the right or to the left, and and the Schwedenkreuz, for example, we drive two, over 260 minimum speed kph. It's it's crazy. It, it, when you think about it, actually, it's it's a bit crazy <laughs> because because you have the the asphalt, you have four meters of grass, and then the ra- the guardrail. Yeah. And uh, you don't have to think about while driving; otherwise, you will not be driving there, or you'll be driving very slow. Yes. But uh, but it's it's a bit crazy. But it it makes this so so special and and so much fun to drive. Every every time I go back, because Norm is not often we drive after the 24 hours mm-hmm. uh, during the same season. We always go back on March or the season after. So it's been six months or seven eight months. You never mm-hmm. drove there, and then you come back, and and the first lap is like. Oh, is unbelievable. I, I I almost forgot how cool was this. You know how how much adrenaline, how much spa- smile you have on your face, and um, yeah, it's, can, it's just hear, something else. I can hear yeah. that in your voice, and I and I think our listeners will appreciate you as a professional driver who gets to race on some of the coolest circuits at the wor- in the world for Porsche in the the World Endurance Championship, and it is clear to me that you enjoy the unique challenge of the Nürburgring Nordschleifer. And, and I think that's lovely in this day and age that you still get excited and uplifted and feel yeah. that you are challenged. Is it because it makes you feel like you are making a difference, that you are making a difference as Kevin Estre, uh, the man behind the wheel? I don't know. I think you can always make a difference on any track. Uh, if, if, if it's your day, if you have the car behind you, the team to help you, you know, but, but uh, definitely there you can make more of a difference. Oh, I yeah. think it's not, it's not the feeling that you, whatever you feel you are the man It's just the feeling that you, you do everything you can to be fast and everything you can 
has some risk and and uh, and just having the right amount of risk at the right time and and taking in account the conditions which might change the the traffic the it's just so much so much stuff um which uh which take into account and and what um, yeah what 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 makes you fast what makes you a hero but also zero to very quickly i oh, experienced yes. Let's say the last two years uh, on on the more on the hero side, but I experienced also a lot of a lot of zero side there, you know. So I, I that's why I appreciate when when everything goes right because I know that it can go wrong very fast. Uh, I, um, you had your, your your wife and your young son there at the at the weekends, uh, two weekends ago for the Nurburgring. Did that? It looked very emotional. Uh, and it was lovely to see the wee man actually was he was a star on the on the tv <laughs> coverage because he was completely cool about the whole thing asleep some of the time as well yeah. up, in, up in the box which was fantastic how important was that to to have have the family with you kevin yeah it was it was good to be honest i, I was a bit scared it's the first time they come to a race because of covid and, yeah. and everything and i was a bit scared of having me let's say not not focus enough but um thinking about it maybe at some times and if there's one racetrack you don't want to think about something else is is, is there on the notch life yes. but to be honest i soon i was really happy to see them just before and just after driving um and it was something really cool um but as soon as you put the helmet, or at least for me, as soon as I put the helmet, I don't think about anymore, which is which is good. Which you have to, it has to be like this. Otherwise, I think you you can't you can't no. achieve uh, a performance there or on any track. And uh, but it was it was great to have them. It's uh, it's one of the major, or let's say, the second biggest race I won in my career from from the goal and from the, the feeling I have and uh, and to have them there uh, seeing them just after I, I took off my helmet was something something really cool and I will remember all my life so um, yeah it's it's um, it was nice it was very nice your son is Thomas is that right Tommy Tommy just Tommy just yeah, Tommy yeah. okay uh, I mean, was that his first time at the racetrack yeah, he's been at the Notch Life, but he was at VLN uh, or NLS2, uh, right. where we won actually. But he was not able; they were not able to come at the racetrack, so Got they it. were at the hotel the whole weekend. <laughs> so yeah, first time at first time at the red track where let's say he could uh, see the cars. That very good, very good. That's gonna you'll be able to show him those some of those pictures when he gets older. And I don't know yeah. whether he'll be happy or embarrassed, but that's your, <laughs> as you, as a father, of course, it's your job to embarrass your your, your children as they get a bit or get a bit we older. We have a lot. We have a lot of pictures to embarrass him already. So <laughs> I'm sure. Good man, that's what I like to hear. Um, you were back in the World Endurance Championship uh, at the weekend. Of course, you won the GT Drivers Championship. Uh, what 2018? Now, goodness me, that seems like yesterday. Long time. Yeah, yeah but it was long ago. Already. Yeah, already. Uh, the, you started your career, Kevin, in a fairly traditional way, European karting champion back in 2004 in the in the ICA. Uh, mm-hmm. You did a bit of single-seater racing in France in Formula Renault Campus, and you did rather well there and won, won that championship in 2006. What what made yeah. you swap to Carrera Cup? Because you had a couple of good seasons in, in Carrera Cup. I think the first time I probably saw you was when France Carrera Cup was supporting Le Mans 24 Hours one year. Um, yeah. And, and I, I seem to remember your name there. So that would have been, I think, 
was that 2010? 2010. Yeah. yeah, I would say 2010. Yeah. So what yeah. what was the, what was the trigger to take you out of single seaters and, and put you into into the line that we well, know you for now, sports cars? Well, my my goal, my goal, not my goal, but my whole family is is a motorsport family, and but it was only Formula One really. Um, so so I, I I was born in this environment and and single seater and Formula One, and and I had this in mind, of course, like like every kid, or most of the kid. Um, and we started, but I knew also that we didn't have the the money behind uh, from our family to to go there but we hoped uh, like like a lot of uh, a lot of drivers to have the result and maybe having somebody you know a red bull or mercedes or somebody picking you uh, early in your career in formal in in single seater to have the chance to um, go up in the category um, and i did I, I won the formula campus so it's the equivalent of formula four let's say mm-hmm. Um, I got some money from there, plus the sponsors to go uh, to do uh, Formula Renault and uh, in France. And to be honest, this year was not. It was maybe probably the most important year uh, for my single seater career or for my career at that moment, which could have maybe changed something, and uh, and didn't go well. Uh, we were not. Team was not perfect. I didn't uh, perform well as well. I think I don't know. There were some many things which didn't go well, and we were fighting also against Jules Bianchi, which won the championship. So so proper proper level. Um, yeah, and then then I finished that year. Tried to do another year in Formula Renault, and uh, and didn't have the didn't have the budget. Um, but I was driving with Graf Racing in in Formula Renault, and Graf Racing was doing. Uh, the Porsche Carac Cup France that year uh, with Patrick Pillet and Patrick won the championship in his first year and got um, a Porsche Works driver contract and the Graf Racing had the half of the budget which was already paid uh, through a manager to do a second season wow. but uh, he didn't need to so then they were like okay then we can search a driver and then I, I got I got a call and uh, I got a test it went quite well, and uh, we could finalize the the budget. And there, I started Caracup France in 2008, so early already, long time ago. Yeah, I, I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? How sometimes, like in races, how just a bit of being in the right place at the right time, how things can yeah. change so so massively. So, of course, you won Carrera Cup France in uh, 2011. You yeah. went on a Super Cup. You won. Uh, Carrera Cup Germany, which is often thought to be as hard as uh, Super Cup. You won that in 13. And all of a sudden, you're on your way at, at, at that point. And, and Porsche have noticed you. And that must have been a good phone call to get, to, to know that Porsche wanted you to go and drive for them. Because everybody knows what happens when you get to be a Porsche supporter driver. Yeah, it was it was a bit of an up and down as it is often in a career. Uh, when I when I won the 2013 Porsche Carrera Cup Germany, I was uh, I knew I had maybe a chance to become a works driver because there there is always a chance when you win this kind of championship. But Porsche needed one driver and and they took uh, Frederic Makowiecki, which had much more experience than me uh, in endurance racing. One you know uh, some races in WC with Aston Martin, etc. So I didn't have my chance there. Then I got a chance with McLaren. I did two years with McLaren. And then the, the big luck I had is was in 2015 was a IMSA race and WC race at the same time. Yeah. Laguna Seca and Spa. 
Yeah. And Porsche was entering a third car in LMP1 in Spa. So they took Nick Tandy, Earl Bamber out of the GT. And then in the same time, there was this clash. So Michael Christensen went to IMSA, didn't do his WC race. And then Porsche needed two drivers for the WC race in Spa. And uh, Jörg Bergmeister, which is a good friend, mm. um, tell, told my name to Frank Valiza at that time. And uh, and they called me. And McLaren accepted. So I, I did... I did Spa to replace Michael, which was after my uh, became my teammate um, with Sven Müller. I did this race and it it went well. And in the end of the year, I got a contract proposal. So it, it's just wow. you know this this kind of luck you need to to have. You need to perform, of course, but you need the luck at first to to have a chance to to drive. Yes, to even get there. Yeah, Frank, Doctor Frank Stefan Valliser at that time, head of the the uh, Porsche, Porsche GT Motorsport. Motorsport. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, smashing guy and a a, a, a real uh, Porsche aficionado. Um, he like I has yeah. got a nine nine three, which he and I talk about more than more. <laughs> you have to. <laughs> uh, and you know what Frank's like? He's such a, an enthusiast for for everything. Uh, we mentioned uh, the World Drivers Championship in in twenty eighteen in in GTE. Uh, you were also doing all kinds of GT3 races around the world by then. And uh, down in uh, the Liquid Molly Bathurst 12 hours, saw you there in 2018. That was third position there. There's another track, mm. by the way, that yeah, is, is just uh, almost inexplainable. Small, small notch life. For me, I always compare it between, I say half of the track is the notch life, half of the track is Macau. So uh, for me, it's, it's really uh, it's really that type of track with the elevation change, huge fast corners between the walls. Um, it's in my top three. For me, top three track is Nordschleife and then Macau and Bathurst are, are the one which are the most challenging and, and uh, old school track where you where every lap you make, uh, you know, there you, you don't speak about track limit, whatever you just. <laughs> You know, you just drive, and if you do a mistake, you hit the wall, and that's yeah. And we, with the safe car, let's say we are on on the safe side now with the with the cars, yes. uh, which is very nice. When you hit the wall, you the car is badly damaged, but you normally you feel okay. So it, it it's um it brings you to a level where you push, and you know which which risk you take. But but uh, the adrenaline is high, the pleasure is high, and and in the end, as you said before, you. If you make the perfect lap, you uh, you will gain a lot, and yes. you will not have track limit cancellation. And and if if you go to Paul Ricard or uh, uh, let's say a newer track, um, new generation track, then you can make a difference. But another guy just go outside track limit, nobody sees, and then he that's makes it. the same lap time than you. Yes. So um, yeah, that's where I think these kind of tracks are um, more. Yeah, I, li- I like it more. That's a good challenge, yeah. I, I, the thing about the Liquid Molly Bathurst 12 hours that always makes me giggle, and I, I'm still not sure how we managed to make this work, is, for those that don't know, the race starts before sunrise, so it's in the pitch dark, and there is there are no big lights all around the track, and yet there's no practice in the no dark. Practice, no practice, yeah. So <laughs> if you're going there for the first time, and you're starting the race, the first time you get to see the track in the dark, as, as you roll off the line, I can't think yeah. of any other race in the world, Kevin, where that is the case. No, it's never. And 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 Bathurst is a really tough track uh, in the day. So in the night is is another level again. So <laughs> it's really 
yeah, it's it's something crazy. It's a it's an event which uh, you definitely have to do if if somebody has the chance. Um, you have to do it as a spectator, as a driver. Uh, of course, as a driver is better, but it's not easy to get the chance there. But as a spectator as well. I mean, hopefully this uh, COVID is is soon over, or let's say we can we can go back to the racetrack and have the same amount of spectators than we we had before. And uh, and Bathurst is a an amazing event. Um, being uh, yeah on the side of the track yeah love it love that um we've said the world endurance championship a, a number of times uh back again you were at portimao at the weekend another great track um porsches uh didn't look as though they had the pace we expected but it was exceptionally hot um 50 celsius on the on the track and the, the michelin right. tires for everybody took took a pounding uh, was was that a bit of a surprise for you guys that you didn't have the pace at the weekend at Portimao no it was not a surprise but we let's say we were prepared of having having tire issue because we we knew from uh, from the F1 from the the previous re- events which has been there since they resurfaced the track and we knew the temperature could be high but uh, but the practice went quite well qualifying was good we uh, I, I did the pole uh, of course it's a 8 hour race you know that you won't you won't win it because you did the pole but we were quite confident uh, but we still had in the back of our head that it would be a tough race and we started and somehow the first stint was very good i i could uh, maintain the lead and and pull a gap and then the track temperature to four degree it went from 50 degree to 54 degree wow. and then suddenly our tire were nowhere <laughs> and ferrari was still very strong so uh and then it took us maybe too much time maybe we didn't react fast enough it was, it's not easy to say but uh, definitely we were not not perfect there we didn't do a perfect job Ferrari had no issue or less issues than us. And for us, we had three or four hours in the middle of the race, which was a disaster. Wow. And uh, and when we react, uh, we were fast again towards the end, but it was too late. We, we lost too much in the middle of the race. Um, and is that, so t- is that a... tire pressures, Kevin? Is that set no, up? It's, no, it's, I, I would say it's a tire... Uh, the compound which we choose right. um, there is a bit of setup there's a bit of pressure but it's a compound um, and and we, we react too late um, and yeah but it's uh, you still learn you know we we have a very very strong team behind us I of think I, w- I would say it's since maybe three four years in WC the worst race we've done as a team wow. where we 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 have the feeling it was in our hands to do better you know sometimes whatever the race goes that way but you yes. you felt you did your best Understood. this was definitely um definitely not not the case this time but in the end we still kept it on track uh, no contact no uh, no big issue we finished third and and get some points but um championship is still long but it's a bit of a disappointment because we Ultimately, we had the pace. We just yes. didn't manage to have it the whole race. The right time either. Yes, exactly. Monza next then. Um, and that's a, another good test before the big one at Le Mans, which is Le Mans. And Le Mans is Le Mans, but it's also double points in the championship. A good Le Mans can really make a championship. But for a Frenchman such as yourself, you'll be looking to Monza to get the car sorted for Le Mans. And Le Mans clearly is now on the horizon. Are you going to be good at, at Monza and Le Mans? Yeah, I think well, Monza is 
tough to say. We we didn't. I mean, we had a prologue there with the WEC maybe four years ago, four yeah, three four years ago. But it was the other car for us. So uh, we've been there testing, but never with uh, with Ferrari or Aston Martin to to see where where we were. Um, I think it's a track which would suit our car, but suit as well Ferrari. <laughs> so. Um, would be difficult to difficult to say um we are very good on braking let's say our strength is always braking and minimum speed in the slow speed corner compared to the others ferrari has a has great uh, traction and and torque acceleration and you have both in in monza so uh, it's going to be the one which nailed the setup uh, better and and maybe track position um will be will be a tough one um but it's still the the high downforce kit, so so the normal uh, WC car uh, which we raced in Spa or Portimao, and Le Mans is the low downforce kit with a completely different BOP, different track. So uh, this is a bit of a question mark because we've been we've been bad last year for many reasons, but hopefully we uh, everybody sort out uh, the the issues we had and uh, and we'll be okay this year because for sure this is the race you don't want to you don't want to miss out no absolutely ag- agree uh, kevin you drive a, a lot of porsches obviously um yeah. we were talking about the gt3r which is the 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 gt3 car i know everything in porsche has got gt3 on the front <laughs> of it the the rsr19 is the is the gte car but of course we've got the new 992 now as the carrera cup car i'm fortunate enough to yep. commentate on that in the us series and the asian carrera cup series as well uh my goodness me how quick have you driven one of those yet because they are they not are not yet i'm really the gt3 I'm really, r yeah. pace yeah, they are really quick. They are really quick. It's really between, uh, just just um, slower, just a little slower than a GT3 car, uh, mm. than the GT3R, which is uh, yeah, it's crazy. It's uh, it's a cup car. It's a very nice car. I, I really uh, hope I will, I'll be able to able to drive uh, to drive it soon. It was development has been made last year and the year before, and last year with COVID and everything mm. was not easy. So I, I couldn't join, uh, but I hope to. Um, yeah, to have the chance sometime to drive it uh, for Porsche or for a coaching day or something. So, um, <laughs> so I'm I'm open. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the Cup car is always really fun to drive, and I've been driving the last three generations. Mm. So I'd like to to drive the last one, of uh, course. And it comes out of the new generation of 911 road car, straight car, the 992, which has got the wide front track, which has got the wishbone, double wishbone front suspension and the, the road this cars. Frank, Frank Valiza's baby. Frank. The GT3. So, we talked so, about uh, him earlier and exactly. he, he has put this together, different tyre sizes, front and rear on the, on the road car, but still a beautiful four litre engine in, uh, in the GT3 and the GT3 RS. I, I mean, that car is a road car. That is as close to a race car that Porsche have ever put on the road, isn't it? Yeah, I think you 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 test a, a 911 GT3 street car on the racetrack, and then you jump in the 992 uh, GT3 Cup, which is the same base, uh, and you will feel a little different here and there, but but little difference, which mm. is uh, something crazy when you know <laughs> the performance of a Cup car. Yes, uh, the the slicks, the the you know the small differences uh, you have on the um, on the suspension, the the weight, and in the end you drive the car and you feel actually I'm in the same car. Wow. It's just a little less grip there, a little heavier, 
but it's it's something crazy. I think they they've been selling a lot of GT3. The waiting list is very long. And oh, tell I, me and about I it. Understand why? <laughs> because <laughs> because uh, because it's a really nice looking car, and the performance uh, which we showed on on uh, on the Nurburgring, Nordschleife, or whatever Hockenheim, the record has been made is is just uh, astonishing. Yeah, I think the the Porsche centres in the UK that I've spoken to reckon they've got 15 customers for every build slot that they've got at the moment. So yeah. I'm at the back of a very long list. <laughs> at the mo- and I'm waiting for the touring. In fairness, I, yeah, I, I'm waiting for nice. the touring yeah. to come out because uh, you can you can drive it you can drive it every day a bit easier than than the GT3. Well, at my age, I don't need all the all the extra <laughs> extra spoilers. Uh, because you will not use the arrow, you mean? No, no well, I, I I've got my own success ballast that I carry with me everywhere. <laughs> Kevin so I don't know Kevin listen thank you very much um, for, for you. your time uh, always a pleasure to speak to you it seems an age since we've been together at a, a racetrack but I've been enjoying talking about your your racing and your success has been superb well done over the last thank you. few years uh, hopefully see you uh, at a track somewhere uh, soon um, I, I'm going to ask you a slightly unfair question to, to finish with and so feel free thank to you. say John I can't answer that um Come on, what can you tell us about the new LMDH? Are you are you involved in this? Come on, you want to be you you want to give that a go, don't you? John, I can't tell you something. <laughs> <laughs> I wish, I wish, but I can't tell you something. All right, mate, that's, that, I, I, it was great. Listen, best to the family, and thank you. Uh, thank you so look much. after little Tommy, and we'll see you at a track soon. Kevin Estra, thanks for joining us on Midweek Motorsport. Cheers, mate. Bye bye. Cheers. Abianto. Cheers, man. Ah, I love talking to that man. Is he the best GT driver in the world at the moment? That's what we've been asked on the Twitter. Uh, we'll get back to sports cars and, and, and WEC and, and what Kevin was talking about there in a moment. Uh, D. Rudel Donald says, I hear what you're saying about the C8R not being a customer car, but what happens to the third car after this summer? I bet they keep it as a spare. We were talking about that new build for Corvette. Midweek Motorsport just after half past nine on a Wednesday. Coming up later on tonight straight after us, Paul Tarsi, Jim Roller and the rest of the Historic Racing News team team look back at the car that broke the duck in terms of overall victories. 1970 uh, for Porsche at Le Mans. Uh, the 917. Uh, that's the subject of the June edition. And tomorrow night at eight... Uh, on this week's episode of Simcast, it's Matt and Jordan this week, and they're joined by uh, YouTube uh, content creator, hardware, uh, and he'll be talking uh, modding and more. That's Chris Hay. Uh, so Chris Hay joining Jordan and Matt tomorrow. Uh, that's from 8 o'clock. And On The Grid follows that at 9 and the boys are talking to Chaz Mostert, who's been locked away at Walkinshaw and Dratty United for the next few years, shutting down one of the big silly season what-ifs, and it's only halfway through the year. He'll be on the show uh, just uh, a couple of hours, well, a day or so after announcing his new deal and giving the team all the details. We're, we'll get Krilzy and Shebex to ask why he stayed with Walkinshaw and Dratty United. The rebuild of that, well, that squad that's got so much history behind it to its current competitive state and whether Zach Brown has promised him anything cool should he win a race. All on his one-on-one with Tony Shebex. Then the team get the full look forward to Darwin 
at the weekend. One of the most exciting rounds of the uh, Repco Supercar year. And the new Super Soft tyre as well. Always a little bit of unpredictability. That's this week on the grid. That's at 9 o'clock, preceded by Simcast and Historic Racing News tonight at 10. Nick Damon is still with us. Hello, Nick. Hello, John. Hello, everybody. Oh, the Butch filter on there. I've got Uh, Butch, yes. You are. Very good. Very impressive. And Johnny Palmer joins us from up in London. Uh, Thank you for all your hard work again tonight, Johnny. How are you? Oh, not hearing Johnny. Not hearing Johnny at the moment. No, that's that. That'll be the one, JP. You get as bad as me, mate. It doesn't get any better, mate. I tell you, this is as good as it gets. If you're forgetting stuff already. There's a button and a fader to to be pushed and pressed, and I'd forgotten that the two need to be combined. It works better this way. Excellent. Always does, mate. I always like it when we can hear you, because you've normally got a lot of good stuff uh, to say. Uh, Your uh, tweets, please, at Specutainment for the last 25 minutes of of the show tonight. I want to take you, both of you, on a journey. I want to take you to Portimao. Oh, thank you. I, I'm, I, it's Amber, but I'm happy to go. Yes. <laughs> my, we're going to have... This is going to be Theatre of the Mind, Nick, from my old okay. Metro Radio, Mike Burson. It's brain. It is. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I want to talk about something that seems to excise a lot of people over the weekend, and that was the swapping of positions by the Toyota Gazoo Racing GRO10s, the 7 and the 8 car. I think, Johnny... Uh, you'll know this because you write this sort of stuff down. Was it four times they swapped during the race? Uh, yeah, there was. There were three separate times prior to the final pit stop, and well, I suppose you could count it as five actually, if I'm not misremembering that, because they tried it uh, in a different combination that didn't work, so it went back again. So yeah, I mean it was at least four and possibly five. So uh, it wasn't news to me, although. The order that they finished wasn't actually the order that they were trying to put them in all race long. Right, yeah, indeed. Um, the answer that came from Andrew, Mo- from Andrew, from Alistair Moffat, Nick, and you know Al because you've worked yeah, with him yeah. in the pit lanes all over the world, mm-hmm. uh, was that the car that was second, which I think was the seven car, and Jose Maria Lopez at the end, JP, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. They, they were judging that the seven car through traffic-free sectors was the quicker car, basically. So there were many occasions uh, on the downhill running for Turn 5, right by the big rotunda building, that, that, that the 7 just easily overtook the 8. The 8 made plenty of space for it, and uh, that's yeah. sort of the way that they wanted them to run, seemingly mid-stint. Yeah, and, and, and towards the end of the race, Jose Maria is on the phone saying, you know, I need to get past, I'm faster than him, he's, he's holding me up. So... They did it. That's part of the track, Nick. They let the car go through, mm-hmm. and then he didn't pull away. No. So after about three or four or five laps, maybe I think it was about that, they swapped them back again um, and, and said, well, that's the fair thing to do. You couldn't pull away. We're only a minute or so ahead of the Alpine. Um, we want to make sure we get a solid one too. Um, it's the, the right thing to do is, is to swap them back. Well, that's not unique, is it? Well, no, I think it's quite... What was unique was quite the openness of uh, Alistair Moffat's response. I mean, basically what he's saying is we don't allow our cars to overtake um, aggressively, naturally, on the track. You can't throw one up the inside. Um, if they want to overtake, they have to ask for the official go-round button. If they can make it work and pull away, they stay overtaken. If they can't, we swap it back. So, mm. the you know, I, Toyota just have a no competition between 
um, team cars on the track. It's a, it's their decision what they want to do. Now, interestingly, what you did see though was the it, that was supposedly put into sharp relief by the two Jota cars, of course, uh, who had a down to the last lap battle, but. The thing people don't seem to realise is whilst there are two LMP2 cars run by Jota, they are completely different teams, financed in completely different ways. They are separate teams. Yes, they, they have an element where they're going to be more careful, have an element where they can share information, but it's not like two Toyota works teams where all the money comes from, from Japan. This is These are separate drivers, separate gentlemen drivers, separate people paying for those cars, run out of the same garage. They are in mortal competition with each other as would anyone else be. Uh, I I don't understand why it upsets so many people, Johnny, because team orders, particularly in multiple teams, whether it's touring cars and single drivers, certainly in endurance racing, where you've got you know sometimes three drivers in a car, and certainly in the big works teams, that's been around forever and a day. I mean, it's happened in rallying, where they've asked people yeah. to pull over. This is not new, is it? I don't feel it is in, in factory endurance racing, no, because, you know, we're at round two. They're looking to build points. Um, it's important to, to score a one-two if you can because it was accelerated points at Portimao, it being an eight-hour race. So there's already – it's not quite the double you'll get at Le Mans, but it's one and a half pretty much. Um, the other thing is uh, these cars are new and – they're relying less on their downforce. They're not LMP1 cars any longer. You know, the, the, the kind of turning veins and the various aero aids have been taken off them. So I just wonder whether there was a little bit of emphasis or um, advantage gained by the toe down the long straight. So that's part of the reason why the, the car behind appeared to be faster on the data. They actually switched yeah. them around, and it turned out that it wasn't. And, and you know, the fairer thing then is is to put the eight back in front of the seven and say, we tried yeah, it. Yeah, I thought so. Um, I, the, the worry was we nearly had a safety car very, very late on. And yes. you, you think, okay, the, the Toyota's won by over a minute, but it could have been so, so different. So there really wasn't a moment yeah. to lose. The last thing you want is a sister car holding up effectively the faster car. It's better than what Toyota used to do, which was when the cars came in for their final stop, there was an agreement that the, the positions would be frozen. And I yeah. think they've realised that there, there can be some flexibility within that, and maybe there needs to be if they're looking for the ideal result at the end of it. Yeah, agree, agree. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to the, the rest of the race in a moment. I want to talk about Kevin Estria, who's just been on with us, our big interview, because we've got a couple of tweets about that. But first of all, a, a very uh, good evening to Cara and Nigel Bolton. Great to hear, Nigel, that you're doing so well. Uh, I know you'll be missing your trip to Le Mans right now, but it'll happen. It'll happen again, even if it's not this year. Um, and we wish you and, and Carla uh, the best, the pair of you. And nice to know that you're tuned in to Midweek Motorsport listening live tonight. Kevin Estra, um, Dave Olcock, a, a, a great interview. As, as such a down-to-work gentleman, very direct and honest answers. Surely we need to let Porsche racers know, Porsche Motorsport know, that they own some big parties to celebrate his success when these issues are behind us. I don't disagree with that. And, uh, by the way, we'd love an invitation. Uh, awesome interview with Mr. GT, Kevin Estra, says Colin Bull. And somebody mentioned that we should be playing My Perfect Cousin by the undertones, because it mentions Kevin in that, of course, every time we have him on, which I think is not a bad uh, idea. He did mention, JP, about the sweltering temperatures for the Michelin tyres. mid fifty Celsius on that very dark, very grippy surface that they have at, uh, at Portimao, resurface for the Formula 1s. It did 
caused them problems. I thought interesting and again very honest that he he was prepared to say yeah, we got it wrong on on our compound choices. He said that uh, we had a lot more pace than we were potentially showing on on the compound that we used, and it's one of those races that they, he feels, by the sounds of things, that they threw away or a better result was thrown away. And and like you say, very refreshing really to, to hear a driver being able to talk with with that amount of freedom um they were scuppered by the fact that they were on a slightly different pit stop rotation which put yes. Esther in before a full course yellow and it put the ferrari that they were chasing for second in during the full course yellow and that really just yeah. messed up their whole result because they were on course for a second and a fourth and it ends up being a third and a fourth and doesn't look good too good on the points particularly because ferrari have opened up quite a, a big gap now but um yeah I, one of the worst races that they've had he said Porsche this is in the in the WEC so um they will kind of do a post-mortem on on all of the mistakes that they made some of the decisions that would have needed to be made on the fly um and you know that's the nature of having to react to certain things isn't it sometimes you are going to make the odd error but they're going to learn through it you can you can bet uh, that certainly well, some of the things that you, like that, though, Nick, you can't, you just can't control. Um, it didn't look like they were going to win the race, but they, they uh, after their issues, but they, they did lose a position because of when that yellow flag uh, safety car or VCR uh, virtual safety car fell uh, mm. in. in in that, uh, Clean A.G. says, uh, if you want to drive at a chase down and win a GT race, Kevin Estre is your man. Oh, and by the way, stand back. Don't don't disagree with that. Ferrari just had a, a better package at, at the WEC Portimao. It's the up and downy bits, I think, that suit the, the mid-engine car. <laughs> uh, Nick, I'm putting it in your terms. Uh, suit the mid-engine car maybe a wee bit better? Well, I think, yeah, you, you do find that tracks suit certain cars. And, and if, a, if, a, if a manufacturer gets out of a window with, with the limited amount of cars they've got running, they, they can find themselves lost, as, as Kevin admitted they were on the tyres. Yeah, I mean, the Ferrari is obviously not so handicapped by its um, BOP as it has been. And, it, and as you say, it, it likes um, the up, down, up, down, up, dale and down, up, hill and down, dale element of Port Market eventually. Yeah, absolutely. LMP2, the usual slugfest. JP, um, not another clean sweep for WRT. They had their problems, but that kept us interested to the end as well. Well, didn't it start in a very intriguing manner? Because we talk about Jota, you know, having a real good scrap at the end. Uh, Antonio Felix da Costa, rather red-faced by about, well, turn three on the first lap because he'd spun Tom Blomqvist round, uh, who'd started from the pole. So I'd forgotten about that. Well remembered. So it was literally spin and win. Yes, it was. And and poor old Tom has to rejoin at the back of, what was it, 13 LMP2s we had, and then just slowly work his way through. Um, and yeah, it was the 28 car that then stood in Felix de Costa's way in order to get in front and take the class victory. And, and thankfully, he kept it clean that time and we were treated to mm. a real old treat, but um, uh, treated to a real good battle at the end. Uh, it means that... Phil Hansen's had lots of different co-drivers to this, well, uh, two different sets, if you like. So he's actually on his own for United Autosports on 49 and trails the trio from the 38 Jota car by seven points now. But I mean, it's, you know, two races of six gone and so many points on offer because of the increased points that we've got for two more races this season. Yeah, good point. Uh, good point. At the front of the field, of course, whilst all the chatter at the end of the race was about Toyota and what we've already talked about, um, it's fair to say that leading up to the race, it was Jim Glickenhaus, Johnny, and uh, the Glickenhaus, the Scuderia Cameron Glickenhaus 007, the Singleton entry, 
uh, was the uh, was causing all the chatter. The car resplendent in its red and white livery, which, oddly enough, I seem to be drawn to. <laughs> uh, it looked in some ways like something from a another age with the, the bigger front overhangs, with the different styling. It certainly looks different. It sounds pretty good. Um, they, they I, I think, probably didn't get the result they wanted, but... Uh, what, fair to say they would come away having learned a lot in true competition for the first time? Yeah, I, I, you know, you get a 30-hour test at Aragon when you're just going around on your own and then you put it out with 31 other cars. That, you know, that's yeah. massive because when they get to Le Mans, there'll be an awful lot more cars than that. Um, uh, yeah, and just sort of niggly issues, wasn't it? The tyres are worrying me a little bit because Richard Westbrook said... They knew that though, didn't they? Yeah, true. I suppose it wasn't necessarily new information um, and they weren't the only team to struggle with tyre wear, um, in fairness. Clutch problem that they were chasing for a while as well um, and obviously the car was sitting in the garage for nearly an hour for them to solve that and just a very unusual moment for Ryan Briscoe causing a, a crash into turn five with a couple of other GT cars but I think he did hold his hands up and say entirely my error and, and you know th- despite a lot of these dri- well all three being vastly experienced in other machinery this is still uh, a learning curve not not just yeah. for the team uh, engineers but also for Ryan Briscoe for Roman Dumas and for, for Richard Westbrook and I think they will feel that they've moved on a you know number of steps now, having got it, that amount of comp- competition under their belts, and they're looking forward to Monza now in another six hours. Uh, and Nick, we know, and and I say this, and this is absolutely not a criticism of Glickenhaus and how they've gone about what they wanted to do. We've talked plenty of times about why they delayed homologating the car because that's going to be stuck with them. That that specification, this they're now dialed into that and locked into that for quite some time but as Johnny said and again this is uh, this is again no detriment or criticism meant a 30 hour test is a 30 hour test a 12 hour test is a 12 hour test Glickenhaus aren't the first people to find out that things are different remember that year when Audi didn't do any racing before they yeah, went to Le Mans yeah, yeah they got cut, it rained and, the, and all the air intakes got filled with oil and rubbery gunk and that was it clag yes um, but yeah, I, yeah. I mean, we're we're all caveating, caveating, caveating. Um, I think the more worrying thing for Glickenhaus is the lack of basic speed. To be honest, um, because as you know, it's it's far easier to make a fast car reliable than a reliable car fast, but it's neither at the moment. Right. And and you know, they that's that's what I'd be concerned about. Yes, you've got tire wear issues. That's 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 about. A problem may well be the track. Maybe you need to look at tire compound change, or it's just it's just geometry, isn't it? So you've got your geometry wrong. In well, some and way. the fact that Michelin haven't had a car to make tires for until the exactly. car was actually out, and you know, and and that's not a criticism of Michelin either. You can only do so much in in the in the virtual world, and we know what Michelin are like. They'll be working on that. Even, in fact, I was going to say, even as we speak, they will have already been working on that. When we were speaking about it yeah. uh, a, a week. Uh, a week ago, Jim did say it to us during N24 and when he was on the uh, the Midweek Motorsport programme a couple of weeks ago now, that they didn't expect to be ahead of the P2s at Portimao on, on pace because there's not enough straight there. The, the changes of altitude, the altitude altering bits, as Alan Process thinks I should call it, because up your downy bits are obviously in the engine, no, and he's absolutely right no, with he's that. He's got a point there. Um, uh, uh, those heavier P1 cars in those downhill braking areas, sorry, um, 
LMH cars uh, in the downhill braking areas. It's not conducive to them. Monza should be better. And if they can double stint the tyres, it should be better still. That sounds to me as though that decision that Jim was talking about, about do we go for downforce or we, do we go for VMAX, they've, they've wavered towards we want a car that goes pretty well at Le Mans. Yeah, I think so. But I think, yeah, but, but, but what is the ultimate downforce? What is the ultimate, you know, it's yeah, it's very hard to tell. I mean, they, they've, they've done everything, um, you know, I wouldn't criticise the way they've approached racing so far. I, I still am constantly confounded why so many people have spent millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars to be no faster than off-the-shelf P2s. And all the LMDH guys would be rubbing their hands with glee at the uh, the lack of outright pace of, of any of the cars um, in the hypercar class. I don't know. It's, it's, it's currently, unless you know, Toyota win their world championship of sandbagging, you, know, you, you kind of feel they're going to get swamped when the, when the uh, LMDHs turn up. I'm not sure how much, uh, how much sand uh, is in there at all, if I'm honest. I think these are still pretty new cars and they've, they're still having to, to fine-tune them. If you think back to the LM. Uh, P1 hybrid era. They never really got a lot more ultimate speed out of them, did they? If you think about the the pole positions that are being set, you know, they didn't massively improve in the last two or three years. No, but they did because the regulations had pinned them back so much. So actually standing still was moving forwards quite a lot. No, I know you're saying, but but I'm still surprised that you... Because we all know that power's king, and, and and yes, they're carrying a little bit more weight, but they've got four-wheel drive to to drive that weight around. Well, them the Toyotas do, grip. yes, yeah, yeah. They've got they've got grip, they've got power, they've got they've got the ability to deploy the power as they want it to do. I just think they should be faster. I'm, and I reckon they think they should be faster as well. Uh, the story for Alpine uh, and the recycled rebellion uh, JP was was that effectively they can't get enough fuel in the car. That was a car that was built to. Another set of regulations, which is an iteration ago, where the key numbers were 10 laps at Le Mans. So the, the chassis, the tub, was designed to take a fuel tank that would allow them to do 10 laps at Le Mans. What their new regs are saying is 12 laps at Le Mans. But they, frankly, just haven't got the room to squeeze any more fuel into that Alpine. Yeah, for, through its basic design, I suppose. Yes, so um, they have to. Well, you know, as far as the balance of performance is concerned, as well, it favours that car in terms of single lap speed, and uh, that's the reason why it did so well in the first chunk of its stint, and also on on Saturday for qualifying too. And um, I'm encouraged by by the speed and and seemingly the reliability of the Alpine as well. Yeah. Um, and Signatech know how to win Le Mans, so I think they will keep the Toyotas honest when we get to August. Um, unfortunately, it's just nowhere near as good on the fuel as the Japanese cars are. So it's an interesting battle on it's paper. It's got nowhere near as much. That's the problem. Well, yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, and, of course, you know, the, the, the Toyota is regening a lot of its energy, so uh, it doesn't have to burn anywhere near as much fuel. So, I mean, it's, it's a great battle on paper, but I, I just wonder whether it'll only last so long in the 24 hours, unless Toyota hit problems, of course. And then Wordless be, you know, calling the Toyotas round for the, maybe the, the latter third of the race. But but it's great to have them there. I do think they maybe have plans to enter, this is Alpine, to, to enter Hypercar or LMDH further down the line, the maybe. Future. and yeah, yeah, and this is sort of a placeholding role on the grid uh, whilst they get there. What's interesting to me, though, JP, is now, bear in mind that the lap I'm about to talk about was that of the Alpine. Um, it was only a second quicker than the fastest lap of 
the LMP twos. Now, all right, it's a shorter circuit. That's going to translate to maybe three or four seconds at Le Mans, which is about where the ACO want it. But there's not a massive uh, safety net there for any of the LMDH cars to have a problem whilst the now, albeit a little bit heavier, but mightily understressed in terms of the powertrain, uh, LMP2s, they'll be pounding around and doing their however many lap stints they're doing. Yeah, yes. So you, you, you've got uh, LMP2s that the officials have said won't be slowed anymore, or I don't think won't be altered full stop anymore because there's Correct. been plenty of changes for the opening months of this season. So the only tweaks that can happen now would be to the hypercar class. But yeah, with a effectively turned down Gibson engine, um, it's not stressed. I mean, it, it, it's known to be incredibly reliable anyway. Then you've got teams that are well within their envelope. So you, you don't imagine that many LMP2s dropping away unless it's a accident damage or similar. Um, uh, so yeah, it could be very interesting because... Those in the hypercars are not anywhere near as numerous as, as LMP2. So quite too. quite easily we could have the second division of prototypes taking the race to the supposed top class. Then we'll find out how quick the, uh, the, yeah, the Toyotas are. Let, let's not forget as well that both the Alpine and both of the Toyotas had extra weight this weekend. That was part of the, the BOPs. And I, I, I'm not really sure about why that happened, but I... I wonder if that's the ACO just gathering a wee bit more data. Nick mentioned the conundrum that it is for teams or manufacturers with the LMDH cars coming online at a fraction of the investment potentially that uh, even Glickenhaus uh, have spent, never mind Toyota. And I'm indebted to uh, John Daggies and uh, Sportscar365 for picking up some great, uh, great quotes from Max Angelelli, uh, who is... Uh, uh, who is uh, the... OEM partnership manager for Delara. Uh, he says he's 100% convinced that more manufacturers uh, are on the way and potentially at Daytona, albeit not the first year, but the second year in 2024, Nick, maybe as many as 20 to 25 DPI 2.0s or DPI H's, LMDH, call them mm. what they are, seven or eight manufacturers involved uh, lots uh, of very heavily employed drivers excellent news for the drivers out there but uh, yeah the, is, the that issue being, is, is that being too hopeful do you think no i think it's very possible the issue will become not the brave new dawn of this area but a couple of years down the line we hit the same issue that super touring hit mm. when you've got nine manufacturers they can't all, all win. win and the ones who aren't win get very bored very quickly yeah um that's the problem will be but if you, you've got a big enough pool when they condense down to six it's still enough What's very interesting, and we talked about this uh, at the weekend as well, JP, didn't we? Um, Delara with BMW is what we understand. They have been working with GM. GM yet to make their announcement about whether it's Cadillac or Corvette or uh, tongue-in-cheek Buick or Saturn. Um, but Delara, happy to say that they'll be working with at least two OEMs in time for the launch in 2023. Well, you're going to have to if you've got seven or eight manufacturers there because there's only four manufacturers building LMP2 chassis in the new era. Yeah, if you're going to be ready, that's really the year to be sorted, isn't it, 2023? Um, So, I mean, it's encouraging. Obviously, 
the the four manufacturers involved are going to be so tight-lipped about things at this stage. Um, I think Jeremy Shaw mentioned it the weekend during the IMSA coverage. 2023 feels like a long way off, but it uh, really isn't. Oh. You know, it's, it's basically a year and a half. Uh, the, the these uh, the, the the OEMs and then the chassis that they're based on need to get everything straight. We will we should have another hypercar in the mix by that point because Peugeot are into yeah. the championship next year by Collis say they'll be back as well, but that will be mm. presumably with a non-hybrid hypercar. Um, and then Ferrari to come in the hypercar class as well. So, I mean, isn't it a great time to be oh, yes. looking forward to just amazing sports car racing on the horizon uh, and some big announcements just around the corner? Yeah, and, and you know, the Volkswagen AG, the VAG a, a group, uh, they, you know, there's an opportunity for at least one or two more brands other than than uh, Audi and Porsche. We've mentioned Bentley and Lamborghini. Um, There was a meeting yesterday, and I haven't got to the bottom of what happened there, Um, but uh, um, it it seems as though quite a few of those OEMs are pushing very hard to get LMDH accepted into other ACO uh, racing categories like ELMS, like Asian Le Mans series. And if that happens, I think, there'll be a run of manufacturers wanting to be involved. We'll finish off with a little bit more sports car news. Remember, Historic Racing News and the 917 Porsche Special coming up. Uh, United Autosports have announced that Manuel Maldonado will be making his 24-hour Le Mans debut this year. Uh, They are defending their win from last year, of course. He's the cousin, the younger cousin of Pastor Maldonado, and he'll be driving in the 3207 Gibson along Nico Jaman, alongside Nico Jaman, and Jonathan Aberdeen, just 21 years old, and he switched to sports cars this year, and of course won the Asian Le Mans Series title with United in February, and now races for them in European Le Mans Series F2. Uh, sort of expected JP, he's graduated along the United line there, hasn't he? Yes, he has, and um, he's, he's in the perfect place to be able to, to get that seat because he knows the team from the couple of races he's done in the European Le Mans series, and I don't just mean the engineering team, but he knows the, the two drivers he'll be uh, partnering up with as well. So, uh, no, it makes sense, um, and he, he s- seems to be showing quite a bit of promise as well. It's very difficult to make the move from single-seater sometimes to the two-seater sports cars, but having that all that aerodynamic knowledge is very useful. Um, and, you know, welcome to LMP2. Uh, the big show, if you like, because we often talk about it being almost like Formula 2, but with two-seater cars because it is so, so close. There are very few differentials indeed. Um, so he'll know he'll be in a race, definitely, but I'm looking forward to seeing how he gets on. Yeah, uh, the WEC uh, next at Monza, perfect warm-up for Le Mans. The ELMS the week before that, uh, Johnny will be covering both of those events for us here on the Radio Show Limited Network of Channels. My thanks to Nick Damon, to Cher Adam, to Johnny, of course, as well, uh, to the wonderful responsible adult uh, who has just popped into the studio and presented me with a second anniversary card for the French wedding anniversary. Um, uh, thank you very much, Eve. Uh, also to Kevin Estra, who was with us in our big interview uh, tonight. I've got to t- tell you a very quick story about Kevin. We didn't talk about it in the interview because uh, um, the football's taken over everything. But he was at the at the France Germany game in Munich on uh, on Tuesday night uh, with his brother-in-law, who was supporting Germany. So he was having a good laugh about that. Allez le bleu uh, for this part of the. Uh, 
the competition at least. We're back next week doing it again. Uh, stay tuned to at Specutainment, at Radio Le Mans and at RSL underscore studio on the socials. And don't forget, it's Simcast at 8 on the grid at 9. But coming next, historic racing news. And there's no time to explain. The alarm is in a 9.17. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. For more, subscribe to Midweek Motorsport wherever you get your podcasts.